this week on the GPHS podcast, how public health precautions work and what is the basic guidance for reopening strategies for the cruise industry. Our story today starts with the Diamond Princess. 712 infections, 14 deaths. How we think about the beginning of the impact of the pandemic on the cruise industry is shaped by this event. We begin on February 1st, 2020. Princess Cruises confirms that a guest from Hong Kong who traveled for five days on Diamond Princess from Yokohama, Tokyo on January 20th and disembarked in Hong Kong on January 25th tested positive for coronavirus on February 1st, six days after leaving the ship. The guest was admitted to a local hospital and reported to be in stable condition. This was only the beginning. News about the cruise ship captivated the world. Our special guest, George Vaughn, will help us continue the conversation on this very relevant topic in today's episode. He is an expert epidemiologist who served as field epidemiologist and inspector with the United States Public Health Vessel Sanitation Program, VSP. He is the author of the GPHS online training, SARS-CoV-2, Novel Coronavirus and COVID-19 Disease, Basic Course for Cruise Industry Personnel. We also have John Schnorr, who will help us continue our Return to Service series. For anyone who is here for the first time, you might be interested in going back to listen to our earlier episodes, which focus on a series of developments with the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC's No Sale Order about when the cruise industry would resume sailing and what requirements permit resumption of service. We spoke about how you may understand regulations in a more meaningful way, the importance of adhering to public health protocols and approaches to achieving important goals. Last month, we focused on returning to operations. We explored the similarities and differences between the US and Canadian cruise vessel inspection programs and the measures that are taking place in preparation of a return to service. Today, we are going to address very important questions related to COVID-19 as return to service begins within the cruise industry. We will discuss how COVID-19 affects the cruise industry, what's important to know about the virus, and more that George will enlighten us on thanks to his expertise. We'll be right back with George and John, so don't go anywhere. Welcome, George. Welcome, John. Our program started with events in February in Japan on the Diamond Princess, connecting to today's conversation on public health precautions in response to COVID-19. What can you share with us, George, from your perspective as an epidemiologist on what took place on the ship and how it relates to this topic? Well, on the Diamond Princess, as you know, an outbreak of COVID-19 occurred among passengers and crew uh, while the vessel was sailing in Asia. Following a cruise that began on January 20th, a positive case of COVID-19 was identified. And during the next voyage, a cluster of 10 cases of the infection uh, were initially identified. On the return of the vessel to uh, Yokohama on 
I think it was February 3rd, uh, 2020, the Japanese Ministry mm -hmm. of Health and Welfare boarded the ship and conducted tests for COVID-19 for SARS-CoV-2 virus. Initial testing identified 10 infections and the ship was placed under quarantine for 14 days. There was then expanded testing of almost the entire 3,711 passengers and crew over the quarantine period, which identified 712 positive cases of SARS-CoV-2. Unfortunately, during this outbreak, there were also 14 deaths among passengers reported during the outbreak. Passenger-to-passenger -passenger transmission was believed to be the major route of transmission, mm -hmm. the majority occurring prior to quarantine when the ship's areas were still open to the public. Also, secondary transmission may have occurred via infected crew members providing essential services to quarantine passengers. Several food workers were noted to be infected during passenger-to-crew and crew-to-crew -crew interactions. An interesting finding on the Diamond Princess outbreak was that almost 50% of the initial cases did not show symptoms at the time of testing, and about 18% of the uh, confirmed cases uh, were without symptoms during the entire quarantine period. That was an interesting finding, and one of the early findings about how uh, the virus was transmitted asymptomatically. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. George, but also during that, <clears throat> there was some discussion and, and there were some studies also done uh, in trying, or not trying, but implicating the ventilation system. Do you, I mean, have you followed up on, on any of those? Because the, the one study that came out really kind of uh, didn't really look at the ventilation or didn't feel that the ventilation system on board was the primary source of spread? No, uh, John, from what I've been uh, able to glean from the literature is that the primary mode of transmission was actually person-to-person -person spread uh, through, through respiratory droplets. Um, not necessarily at that point, and still in the literature, I'm not seeing much with regard to the Diamond Princess outbreak that uh, involved uh, airborne uh, transmission, that is aerosol transmission, uh, although that's been in the, in the literature as of late. Uh, but during the Diamond Princess outbreak, there wasn't much to indicate that uh, the ventilation system was implicated in the transmission. Good. Okay. Thanks. Moving from here, so what would you say is the foundation for understanding and following evidence-based public health strategies to reduce the risk of adverse health outcomes associated with COVID, like basic guidance for reopening strategies within the cruise industry, touching on contact-to-contact -contact ventilation system, like right now you guys were talking about various aspects. Well, I would say that the reason for using evidence-based public health practices and strategies is to reduce the you know, adverse health outcomes associated with COVID-19 by leveraging the collective knowledge and expertise of the best scientific minds and the best research in the fields of infectious disease and public health uh, with the idea of achieving the best outcomes for protecting of the public's health, especially mm -hmm. those that are vulnerable to severe disease. Using an evidence-based approach means that the strategies and recommendations are grounded in science. As uh, we know 
it is at the time of the uh, establishment of those strategies and, and recommendations and when they are made. You know, that's due to change uh, as well. You know, the fact that science changes and the fact that this is a new infection, you know, recommendations and strategies may need to be updated as new science emerges. And in terms of the cruise industry reopening, uh, the strategies recommended by the health experts are, are really uh, essential and important. Uh, the way I see it is that generally there are two categories, if you will, of actions, actions that are to be taken by the cruise ship or cruise industry and personal actions that are to be taken by individual passengers and crew members. Okay. You know, I believe that, you know, the first element in that strategy is to have uh, develop a strong plan and train staff and crew to their as to their roles and responsibilities within that plan. Uh, that's kind of what we did with norovirus uh, as well, is uh, we required the industry and the vessels to develop uh, plans for mitigation and strategies for control as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also appropriate here, uh, and probably even more so because of the uh, way that this particular virus is transmitted in the cruise ship environment. And Touching on the virus, can you help us understand what creates COVID? And, and in fact, let's talk a little bit about epidemiology and how it is applied within that cruise industry and in this case, understanding scientifically, like you were saying, the, the virus. Well, uh, first of all, the, the virus that we now know as SARS-CoV-2 um, is a coronavirus, and coronaviruses are a large family of viruses that cause a host of uh, diseases, including the common cold. And I believe the literature suggests that around 15% of the common colds are caused by coronaviruses as well. Uh, they can also cause severe infection, as we see with uh, COVID-19, but also in 2002 and 2003, we had uh, an, an epidemic of a severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, and this virus is quite similar in its genetic structure to the SARS virus, or SARS-CoV-1, as it's now called. And also later on, I believe it was in 2012, we had the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, the virus that causes that is MERS-CoV as well. So these are all uh, coronaviruses that have originated primarily in, in animals uh, most believe that uh, the current SARS-CoV-2 uh, is believed to have originated in bats uh, and may have jumped to humans through an intermediate host, but that's yet to be confirmed. Okay. The, the actual virus itself, SARS-CoV-2, is a single-stranded RNA virus, and it has an envelope and spike proteins, and those spike proteins is what gives the coronaviruses their name. It looks like a crown. Ah. Um, and, and, and that, um, that structure allows the virus to attach to cells. And as you know, as we're familiar with, viruses cannot replicate outside of the living host. So they need to attach to living cells and then enter those cells and then take over the, the reproductive machinery of the cells to make more viruses. Uh, and that's what happens when a person becomes infected. The virus replicates in the upper airways, and after about two days, the infected person is able to spread that virus to others. Mm. So, so that's that's essentially a bit about um, the virus itself and the fact that it is a respiratory virus, so it's easy to spread within the cruise population. 
And, the, and, it, and it's it, it's interesting, you know, that when we have these novel, these new yes. new viruses that we sort of think about, the reality is they're not really new. Like George said, coronavirus has been around a long time in, in sure. different forms and causing different illnesses. It, this one just winds up being a little more infective, a lot more infective, and it crossed over from its normal host, animal hosts, to human, and and then spread and and created this pandemic, spreading and and illness. But it's it's not a brand new virus, no. uh, and that's that's kind of important to understand. There's always this thing that it was it was developed in a laboratory and things like that. But that that is probably not the case this is a virus that has been around for for many years yeah that's that's uh that's right john and i mean the way viruses survive is through you know mutations regular mutations so that they can adapt to different hosts and protect their own genetic material i mean that's the whole purpose of the coding and the structures is to protect that genetic material so that it can be passed along through through the use of uh, infected cell machineries. I mean, that's actually how how viruses uh, survive. Very, very it's fascinating. <laughs> so when it comes to COVID-19, what's the first and most important aspect that you'd say everyone needs to know? And are there key points about the precautions we should practice for it? Well, I think that the first and foremost is that everyone needs to recognize that Everyone is susceptible. Whenever you have a new or novel virus, uh, it, everybody in the population essentially is susceptible to it because there is no immunity built to that particular strain of the virus. And the same thing happens with norovirus as well, is that they change and those changes evade the immune system. And uh, that's the case here as well. Um, so I, I think it's important that people understand that uh, everybody is susceptible. Yes. Be and because of that, that means everyone has to take certain personal precautions to protect uh, the spread of the virus to different segments of the population, recognizing, of course, that some segments of the population are exquisitely sensitive to the virus and it can lead to severe health outcomes and consequences, including death. So it's important that we practice uh, interventions that prevent the spread of the virus within our communities. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's, it's nice if we could say, if you, if you get sick, stay home. <laughs> and, and we do say that, but the problem with this one and, and many viruses are the same is that we have a large group that are asymptomatic or that are yes. not showing any symptoms. And so they're, they're perfectly healthy. They, they have no problems, no cough, anything like that. So, yeah, so they're out and about spreading. Um, well, and again, it's, go ahead, George. Yeah, one of the other aspects besides the asymptomatic um, spread spread of the virus is there's also a period of time following exposure uh, that an individual who becomes symptomatic is still able to transmit. We refer to it as, as a pre-symptomatic mm. period, and that also makes 
uh, for strategies, uh, difficult strategies for controlling the, the, the virus. I mean, contact tracing, that's specifically what that's about is, is once an individual has been exposed to the, to the virus, maybe, you know, exposed to someone who's an active case, the idea with contact tracing is to take them out of the population because of that period between the time that they were exposed and the time they actually expressed symptoms, which can be as long as about, you know, on average, you know, five to seven days or so, that they're actually able to still transmit that virus within the community. So that's that's one of the strategies to take people out of that population for, you know, upwards of 10 days uh, so that they don't transmit. And so that makes it different than other virus, respiratory viruses mm -hmm. as well. Right. And and the other the other thing along with that and and uh, is and Maria is sick of hearing me talk about no. it. but, but uh, is is mask wearing? I mean, yeah. this is one of those things. Why why wearing a mask uh, is so important? And and again, it's so important to remember that that mask is not there to protect or to protect me from somebody who is ill. That's one of the reasons, but the most important reason is to decrease the amount of droplet spread that ill person has or that person that was exposed or that person that is asymptomatic from spreading that to other people around them. And again, that we'll talk about it later in this as well with some of the things that the cruise lines are doing and need to do. And But it's everybody. That's the importance of wearing masks during this period of time until we have have ways of trying to uh, minimize the spread of it from whether it's uh, vaccines or or treatment or things like that. We're talking about it now, so to speak, The what the cruise industry can be doing. It seems like contract tracing is involved, social distancing, the, the masks. And, and I was thinking you guys kind of answered a couple of questions in one that I had, but how is COVID-19 and there's no vaccine, we have flu season coming in, cruise ships are going to resume service, even though it's been postponed, but how how can the cruise industry prepare for this? And what are some of the expectations that we have for the public, for the crew? From an epidemiologist's perspective, George, can you share a little bit? And you're talking about contact tracing, so that shared a bit of what can happen to put in measures, but what else? And particularly even with this flu season, how does this affect everything? Oh, okay, let's let's start with, uh, you know, kind of where we left off where we were talking about, you know, the mask wearing and social distancing and so forth. You know, in the absence of uh, a vaccine or other th or therapeutics or treatment regimens or whatever, um, we still have to do certain things to reduce transmission. I mean, that's typically is the idea. We want to reduce the spread, reduce transmission of the virus. So things like the what's called non-pharmaceutical non interventions, that is the social distancing, the wearing of masks, which is referred to as source reduction, uh, decreasing the amount of virus in the environment essentially is what that is, and frequent hand washing should provide a level of protection against influenza virus as well, um, among a host of other mm -hmm. uh, pathogens that you may find within populations on a ship. Uh, so those things in and of themselves will provide an initial barrier to, you know, 
initial protection, I guess I should mm -hmm. say, against the spread of the virus, regardless of whether the virus is, is uh, SARS-CoV-2 or if it's influenza A or seasonal influenza, whatever, um, those strategies will be uh, helpful. As a matter of fact, I should say that the basis of the non-pharmaceutical interventions is actually a part of the influenza pandemic strategy. So that's not new. Okay. We've been we've been using those those strategies in the past, and some of them were used in the uh, initial SARS uh, outbreak in 2003 as well. A major a major advantage, of course, with the control of influenza is the fact that there is a um, vaccine and antiviral therapy that is available for those who might become infected. So, what I would suggest that the cruise industry do uh, in preparation for the seasonal influenza as well is to make sure that the public health messaging, at least, uh, includes recommendations for passengers that are considering sailing on a ship uh, to strongly consider getting their flu vaccines before they arrive. Of course, uh, for crew members, um, you know, they must maintain their immunization status also uh, to prevent transmission. So I think those are some basic things that can be done that will, in, in essence, protect against both of those viruses going forward. John, do you have anything to share? To no, uh, no, that's, that's uh, perfect. I mean, it really is the uh, vaccination for things that we can be vaccinated against is, is uh, an utmost importance. But the fact that we can reduce the common cold, uh, having worked with the cruise line for a number of years, uh, when I do training, I always kind of joke with the crew when I talk to them about doing certain things. I said, you know, listen, you have one crew member that signs on to the crew that has a cold, just a common cold, and it doesn't take very long before every crew member gets to experience that same pleasure that everybody else had because of that confined environment that a cruise ship is. It's very easy to spread these things one person to another. Yeah, that's definitely the one person to the other. And uh, would you guys then say the foundation of the protocols that are being put in place with COVID-19? Was the flu part of that foundation? I, I think that whenever you consider a public health strategy in an environment like cruise ships, you, you should also consider what maybe what other uh, pathogens might, might come about. So I think, uh, you know, the, the fact that influenza happens every year uh, that certainly is is probably uh, you know went into the strategies for control, um, but I think it's I think it's appropriate and to uh, to look at the totality of respiratory threats on on the ship and address all of them through a comprehensive public health strategy. That's that's the approach that I would take. So you know that you're going to have influenza uh, every year. Uh, in the populations that board your ship, um, and and so it's going to come up the gangway every year, every year, every every voyage, uh, the same as uh, you know, COVID nineteen will come up that gangway in in the populations that will be on the ships as well. So I think the strategies should be to address comprehensively uh, the the respiratory threats. I think a better way to think about it when we talk about this foundation, the foundation isn't so much for COVID. The foundation is for a good public health 
program on board the ships. And so that's that's the foundation for, for a lot of things, uh, like George said. So, I mean, when we talk about the foundation, yes, it, it will be effective against COVID, but it's effective against a lot of other things. And that's something that they need to remember. That's right. Well, because when there is like a bad outcome on board a cruise ship, and we've seen this with the news and what's been going on, even though COVID is is new, the news and the bad outcome and the cruise ships go hand in hand. Usually there could be an accusation as if the process on board the ship was flawed. But is that really, you know, the case? Well, uh, you know, um, if you're referring to things like outbreaks and so forth that that have been in the news, you know, outbreaks can happen regardless of uh, the protocols in place on a on a cruise ship. Um, wh- you know, and, and at times it could be because uh, the protocols were not followed. At other times, they could be followed uh, to a T, and you can still re- it can still result in an outbreak. You know, passengers and crew uh, may be infected when they come on board the ship, and they can escape detection. You know, we just mentioned that this particular virus and influenza viruses as well. There's a proportion of that population that's asymptomatic. So whether, you know, if you have screening programs in place uh, when they board the ship, they can they can be incubating the virus. So they can actually have the virus and not show symptoms at the time of boarding. And so they can essentially, if you want to call it that, they can es- escape detection and so mm-hmm. forth. That could be one factor. It could be not that the crew did anything wrong. It could be that, you know, the infection was prevalent in the population that came on board the ship and, you know, screening's not 100%. And so um, I think, you know, cruise lines and and cruise ships need to be prepared for that eventuality. Um, Another situation that that can come about is that the illness can occur on a previous voyage and continue into the next voyage. We used to see that with norovirus quite a bit, but also um, the situations on both the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess, you know, demonstrate this fact. Uh, they, the initial index cases, if you will, on both of those did not occur on the voyage where the actual outbreak was realized. They occurred on a subsequent voyage. So that could be, uh, you know, another factor um, that's found out after the fact. In both cases, that is what happened is that the outbreaks were detected after the fact when the, you know, second uh, voyages uh, occurred. Um, but again, what I would suggest that what is important is that, you know, what is the actual response that to those types of uh, occurrences? I think that's actually very important. You know, following any outbreak or any bad outcomes, if you will, um, there should be a thorough, I think there should be a thorough assessment of the response. And if any deficiencies are detected, uh, addressed and corrected promptly, uh, because you know, they will happen. The events will happen regardless of uh, how how much you put in place to protect against it. It'll, it will happen. Of course. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, it takes a high level of vigilance yes. uh, from the cruise industry, from the crew, from the guests on board um, to, to try to minimize that. I mean, there are some things that happened in the past. We won't I won't say any specific cruise lines, but we had a we had a, a ship that started early, uh, and they had or felt they had the proper procedures in place, but 
they were probably not enforced as strictly as what they had hoped and and they wound up having to shut down again yeah. uh, and I don't think there's they're sailing at the moment now yet we have others uh, Europe has been successful with uh, several cruise lines in putting procedures in place and and being very strict with how they apply those and they have had some success that's not to say they may not have had cases or may not have had somebody come on board with it um but for for because of that vigilance they haven't had it on subsequent cruises so that's one of the things that i you know when i talk to different people i i stress is that when the cruise lines do get to start again when that no sale order is expires and not re renewed they have to be willing to enforce those standards yeah. and and that's not in their culture not because yeah. they don't want to protect people they're in the hospitality business that means they want people to come on board their ship and have a wonderful vacation and a wonderful time and i applaud them for that but this is we have to be able to to really uh, hold the line on some of these things uh, until we get vaccine till we get treatments we get uh, all those things because otherwise it's going to be a long time before we see cruise ships again well you can you can have uh, again you can have very strong plans very complex plans or, or whatever but you know there's been a lot of effort that, that has already gone into uh, strategizing and developing different um, you know, public health interventions and practices and modifications, all of that uh, has been, you know, already gone over, hashed out. And and I applaud them for, for bringing the experts to the table to help pull some of those things together. But, you know, really, if you don't have, as John said, if you don't have strict adherence to those public health standards and, and sustained at that, that, um, you're going to, you know, things are going to crop up that are going to cause problems. And, you know, once it's in front of the, the public's eye, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, you know, to come back um, after after those incidents. If they haven't been, if they haven't demonstrated that they've been vigilant, as John says, about sticking to those plans and practices and so forth. There's another thing I'd like to mention, too, that whenever there is something that is a negative outcome, if you will. What I think needs to be included in any of these plans is that there is a strong public health communications, a strong message that is prompt, that is transparent, and that is truthful. Um, that needs to be a part of any strategy, public health strategy, to manage a crisis should it arise. And we have seen, you know, situations where that's not been the case. You have to really be uh, transparent and clear. And first, actually uh, be there in a position where you can say what you know and also what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, so they need to be prepared for that. That's, in, in essence, public health crisis management 101. Yeah. Well, and this COVID has really done a lot in affecting people's lives in, in general, particularly the cruise industry and travel, hospitality. Uh, I see online uh, 
a mixture of reactions, both to those who will have something to say about the need to take all the precautions necessary be before becoming uh, returning to service, and then the opposite. Some are very upset instead. It's almost like they think, you know, why are you making such a big deal? So there's a divide amongst people as always. However, this is where luckily we have experts such as yourself, George, and you, John, uh, and people within the industry doing what they know already they need to do, have a strong foundation to prepare for the worst. And uh, I just would love to thank you for the enlightening conversation on all aspects and ask if either of you had anything else that you think is important for the cruise industry to know with COVID-19 and the industry hopefully moving forward soon with returning to service. Uh, I, think, no, I, think they can, I think they can be successful. Um, I, I have seen some of their successes over the years, um, and I think they could be successful here as well. The foundation is laid. What needs to be done uh, has been spelled out. Uh, they just they need to to carry it out uh, and be, as in John's words, vigilant about it. I think they'll be successful if they do so. Yeah, I echo that uh, that sentiment. Look forward to them getting back working, back sailing, and people enjoying holidays on board cruise ships. I look forward to it happening as well. And I thank you both once again for being here and for sharing all your helpful information. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. GPHS Podcasting Supervising Producer is Catherine Arthur Hershenfang. Our team also includes John Schnorr and David Forney. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend who doesn't know about our show. You can also find us at gphsconsulting.com and send us an email at info at gphsconsulting.com. We want more people to find our show, and we appreciate you as a listener to our podcast. Our special guest this month was George Vaughn. I'm Maria Florio. Thank you for tuning in to the GPHS podcast. Podcast.